Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello, and welcome to the Standard Deviations podcast live from Orion's Ascent Conference. I am joined today by Phil Taves. Phil is the CEO of the Taves Corporation and a co-portfolio manager of the Taves Fund and the Agility Shares ETFs. His management strategies focus on creating investor-friendly products designed to meet investors' economic and behavioral needs. He is also the co-founder of the Behavioral Investing Institute, an organization devoted to helping advisors manage investor behavior through market challenges. Phil, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Great to be here. You having a good time at, yes. uh, here in sunny Scottsdale? Loving it. It's, it's uh, a bit toasty. It's a to little say. too sunny. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little too sunny. It was 107 yesterday, and uh, I can't do it. But it's been, a, it's been a wonderful conference. So no one better to talk about behavioral investing with than yourself. We're both huge enthusiasts. You actually have a three-part process for helping clients make good behavioral decisions, and I want to break it down and talk about each part. Before we even get into that, though, before we even get into that, a quick audible here. Why are so many folks focused on sort of the behavioral coaching elements of behavioral finance and and so few have worked to integrate the findings of behavioral finance into actual asset management? Because I feel like both have have huge potential. So I think I think that there's this huge has been for decades, this huge thrust behind Gene Fama's idea that markets are efficient. And so any idea that says we can try to do something other than maximize gains for the certain level of risk is uh, basically off off the table. Yeah. So I think I think what's happened over the years is with people like Andrew Lowe, with people that are looking at portfolio creation from a perspective of a broader range of of investor needs, it's created a pathway for pursuing that. And and I think once you break through this idea that all you can do is just get the maximum return, it opens up a whole new way or of thinking about creating portfolios and and it creates the opportunity to curate them to meet our behavioral and economic needs. Yeah. What's what's so fascinating to me is is how many sort of disparate groups sort of hang on to the the title of behavioral investors, if you will. Right. You know, I I sort of wrote a book called The Behavioral Investor that that took a certain approach. There's people like you. We're going to talk about your behavioral investing approach. Right. Certainly some market tech technicians and tacticians who would say that their behavioral in their, uh, and all the way down to the, the Jack Bogle crew, the, the indexers would say they're the true behavioral <laughs> investors. So let's talk about your process though, because okay. they're not here today. Great. Uh, Great. Your first step is to build portfolios that attempt to anticipate declines. How specifically do you go about that? What signals are you looking at? It's a tricky thing to do. How are you, how are you trying to crack that nut? Well, so, I mean, even, even as before that, I think what, what we try to talk to advisors about is, under, first of all, understanding the significance of all declines. What, what, what our industry tends to do is look back at the last 50 years and look at the financial crisis, other declines in the stock market and say, like, okay, that's the span of history. That's what we need to address. As, as a first step, look 50 years further back. Look at Japan. Look at situations where the markets stretch further down and for longer periods of time than just the financial crisis or the internet bubble burst. And that's revealing because when you do that, 
you understand that even a balanced portfolio construct going through that type of of a market is unnavigable, both behaviorally, certainly behaviorally for most investors, but also, and this is this matters a ton, economically. Yeah. In other words, you go through you go through the Great Depression with a balanced portfolio, and you run out of money. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a starting place. But then, how do you do that? What it really means is defining what you want to achieve and then finding, setting criteria for different funds within a portfolio to allow yourself to, to, to do that. As an example, uh, one of the ways we, we illustrate a behavioral portfolio is with a modified return distribution chart. Uh, I can say modified return distribution chart because this is a standard deviations podcast. That's right. Yes, we do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So with with the this uh, modification is take a distribution chart that has both a long left and right tail, and attempt to cut the left tail short, and you know that you have to pay for that, so move the right tail slightly to the left. So understand that you're going to give up a little bit of gains to cut the left tail short. And one of the ways to do that then is to stick with a relatively conventional basic construct. So in other words, as a balanced portfolio, stick to something like 60% stocks and 40% bonds, but then bring in strategies or funds that attempt to address contingencies. So in the case of equities, put a decent chunk of your equities portfolio in something that has the ability to uncorrelate from negative market activity, but attempts to achieve gains. Put the other half of your equities just in something long only. For fixed income, think about things like adaptive strategies that can be in tips or short duration or high yield bonds. By maneuvering like that, you may not generate a a lot of above inflation growth, but at least if interest rates rise or inflation increase, you might be able to avoid principal losses. I want to dig a little deeper on on what we'll call the Lucretius problem, right? So this is Nassim Taleb kind of famously called this the, the Lucretius problem after the person who thought that the largest mountain he had ever seen was the largest mountain that could ever be. So for many investors, it's been a nice 10 years. You know, if you've been in right. the markets for 10 years or so, the largest mountain that you've ever seen isn't, isn't very big at all. So I think we don't have a sense of history. But on the other hand, it seems like there is sort of a new milieu milieu, right, where, where we're not allowed to fail. So how do you think about this in, in light of everything that's going on? You know, uh, the, the market moves so quickly and the Fed and others seem so quick to try and prop things up or make things better. How do you think about sort of tactical signals in a world that moves so quickly like we saw with the corona crisis? Yeah. So the decline that what we saw last year during the pandemic was ferociously you know, had ferocious velocity. Yes. Uh, and so, well, strategies, I think, could be multi-layered. So one of the things we like about loss avoidance strategies is, is strategies that can move tactically and attempt to move out in the early phase of declines. But as you said, if that happens so fast that you wake up and you're down 10%, you've already taken that loss and now you're going to be making a permanent part of your portfolio. So we like funds or strategies that also have a layer of options. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what that allows you to do is attempt to address sudden event risk. So if, if the market moves down before the tactical part kicks in, and then when the tactical part kicks in, that's when you get real potential zero market down correlation. 
Yeah. So the second step is one that I talked about with your colleague, Eben Burr, the most interesting man in the world. I think that we, we both agreed <laughs> before the podcast. But it's creating action plans for unfavorable markets. And if people haven't heard that episode, the episode with Eben Burr, it's all about a, a survey that you commissioned that showed just how unprepared uh, the average advisor and, and their client was for, for the next bear market. I want to get tactical, like I want to get as practical as possible. Give us a couple of tips. What does it look like to create an action plan for an unfavorable market? Right. So the first step is what we just talked about, which is having a behavioral portfolio. And and the reason that's so important is if you don't have that, what you could be doing is using your behavioral coaching mastery to coach someone to oblivion (laughs) in losses in their portfolio. Not good. And that's not something you want to do. So... I'll give you an example. Maybe the best way is through an example. What we advocate for significant losses is first expressing to investors that markets can move down as much as they have, even the Great Depression. We even have a worst case scenario visualization because percent decline is only one dimension of declines. And the dimension that the second dimension of that is the duration of a decline. And it's when you put those two things together where you have really unwieldy behavioral investor issues. So help them understand that can happen and then include, explain to them how the portfolios potentially ad- address that kind of a market. But then talk about, okay, so when, this is an example, when the market moves down at the end of each year, what we're going to do is we're going to rebalance the portfolio into the thing that just had the biggest loss. And you use some examples of other types of industries where that type of thing works. And so that's like, that's sort of like if, you, if someone's learning a tennis backhand, that's the first hit. You teach them how to hold the, hold the ball. Now you teach them to, to hit it. it won't, it'll be miserable at first. And then once you have that action plan in place, then it's about relentless repetition in ways that helps them really get it. So you, know, so you don't want to just tell someone how to do a backhand. And then when, when, it's, when the ball comes at them a year later, say, remember what we said? Like, hit, hit the ball, right? You, right? You've got to practice. Not unlike, it's kind of a boring analogy, but a fire drill at a school. So it's like, okay, this is going to happen. We're going to stand up. We're going to get in this line. We're going to walk through this. So that all that then builds more robust neural pathways so that when these things come along, they know what to do. But there's, there's another thing too. So, you know, we've talked about that having strategies in a portfolio that attempt to uncorrelate from negative market activity, if you have that and it's working the way it's supposed to work, potentially you can miss out on the fall, but then when it re-engages at the bottom and, and moves higher, this then potentially even becomes something that you can point to that, that's going to do well as a consequence of the decline. So it's adding a positive about the portfolio, reminding them why you did it, and now they feel good and smart because they've got that, got that working. I love the point you made about repetition. You know, I think it's one of the things that came out in the survey that we talked to Evan about was just the disconnect between how advisors feel like they've communicated a plan and how well, or in this case, how poorly that, that plan has been absorbed by, right. their, by their clients. Repetition is super, super important. Do you ever worry that you're planting seeds of fear and doubt where there are none? I mean, do, you, do your clients ever look at you as though you're a, a financial prepper or something? Or are they, are they grateful for the exercise? So the advisors that go through our coaching program haven't said uh-huh. that that happens. Yeah. Here's a stat, though. We were doing a webinar for the, the Investments and Wealth Institute about that survey. 
And we talked about the fact that stocks moved down to 86% during the Great Depression, which most of us understand. And live on the webinar, we did a poll question. And we asked advisors, how many, what percent of your clients do you think would be meaningfully upset if they understood that stocks went down as much as 86%? 90% said that they thought their clients would. Here was a follow-up uh, poll question that we asked. It was, do you think your practice could survive a, a Great Depression era decline? 52% said they didn't think they could. Mm -hmm. so, so I think it's imperative for that reason, to come with a plan that both talks about the decline and addresses your way of navigating it. And then the, nav the way of navigating it needs to be well understood, plausible, and something investors think they can, they can accomplish, they can do, they can live through. Your point about duration and, and sort of the behavioral implications of, of duration is well taken too. Cliff Asnes, who I, I respect a lot and, and love his thinking, you know, I heard him interviewed once and it said sort of what was, what's been your biggest learning about financial markets? And it was, it was I'm going to misquote him here, but it was effectively how different it feels and how long it feels in the moment versus how oh. fleeting it feels when you're reading about it in a textbook. You know, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, you go, oh, well, this, you know, the, the great financial crisis only lasted a couple of years and then we were back better than ever, right? But right. when you're living through, oh, when man. you're mucking it out in the midst of those couple of years, it feels uh, interminable, right? I, I think so. And I think that's why a lot of behavioral guidance it will ultimately prove to be ineffective because what you need to think about is the, the, psych, the, the psychology of what's going on during these kind of devastating markets. Yeah. One, one thing that I appreciate about your thinking, and I kind of mentioned this at the outset, that you're doing, doing something unique. You talk about the, the downside of bonds or the potential downside of bonds, right? And I think that's something that's increasingly uh, becoming uh, part of the public consciousness. You know, the, creating portfolios that have been protected from downturns has historically been highly reliant on bonds right. as a form of ballast. Uh, but you point out in some of your research that, that bonds have gone through bear markets, too, and that, that they've, these bear markets, in terms of the duration, have lasted as long as 36 years, and that in terms of the intensity, they've been as, as deep as 44% drawdowns. I don't think the average person... <laughs> understands that you could have a three and a half decade long, uh, you know, bear market and bonds that could cause you to lose half of your money. How are we not thinking about bonds correctly these days? Well, so one of the things that I was thinking about as you were uh, asking that, that question was that we need to reframe recency bias. Because uh. when we think about recency bias, we think about moments like the drop during the pandemic. And, and it's like, okay, well, something happened over the last 30 market days, and that's going to affect my decision-making. But the much more challenging and perilous way to, to think about recency bias, it's, it's not actually even recent, is, is that there are generational trends that affects the, affect the way we think about asset classes and markets, and bonds is a perfect example of that. Uh, so it almost doesn't matter how much you talk to the advisory community about the possibility of a bond bear market, they just can't believe you. Because for, for over you know, three, four decades, bonds have done great. Yeah. It, you know, produced decent above inflation gains. They act as a bolster to the stock market when it moves lower most of the time. And so this is a real challenge, not just for investors, but advisors. So 
that 36-year bear market began when the 10-year was just above 2%. And at the time, that was as low as it had ever gone. So, you know, being as low as where we were around 50 basis points and now living at around 1.3% means that the challenges are potentially vast. So one of the keys that we talk about through both our asset management teams and, and our Behavioral Investing Institute is creating ways to not have to make market calls. Uh, market calls... Most of us would acknowledge that market calls where you say, okay, get out of stocks, it's crazy, or get out of bonds, it's crazy, don't really work. It puts you in a position where you're taking a stance, and, and if the market doesn't go your direction, then you can have serious investor retention issues. So instead of thinking, it like, do I make a tactical move as an advisor in or out of a market, it's more really, how do I build in contingency planning? for a high inflation or a rising interest rate market. Well, rising interest rates, they do deliver some potential principal losses, but the real culprit for bond bear markets has been inflation and, and looking at real returns. And there's something interesting about inflation. We looked at the last three episodes of inflation over the last 100 years, and in each of those episodes, uh, inflation about doubled on average. So 100% increase in prices over somewhere between a four and a, a nine year period. And, of course, bonds got murdered uh, during that period. But guess what didn't? Stocks. Mm. So that's good news because a way to approach the potential of inflation means to keep an allocation to equities, but then curate in a way where you've got some potential hedging if that market moves lower because, obviously, we're highly priced right now. And then for fixed income, build in something that's adaptive that's tactical, that can migrate to tips, that can migrate to short duration to help maybe not produce a lot of above inflation growth, but at least help get out of the way of principal losses. And so if you, if you do that in a relatively conventional portfolio, you still have your stock allocation. I think you could do relatively well, you know, despite what we may see ahead on the inflation front. If Professor Siegel's to be believed, I don't know if you caught his presentation earlier today, but he thinks it's coming in a big way. So yeah. we, will, uh, we will see yeah. uh, how that all shakes out. So the third leg of this behavioral stool here is Odysseus contract. It's pre-commitments, pre which I talked about in, in one of my seminars here. Talk about the science of pre-commitment, why it works, and, and how you use them. So it's, it goes along with the backhand analogy that I was using before, mm -hmm. which is that by asking someone to make a pre-commitment, you move from the didactic into the, the fully realized training where someone internalizes a message. And so the way we, we talk about pre-commitments as, as being at for two parties, one is for the advisor. And what is the advisor going to be doing in the portfolio? Because we don't really expect an investor to be going in and making tactical shifts or rebalancing uh, without you know, we don't expect an investor to go in and make tactical shifts or rebalancing. That's something the advisor would do. And then the investor is, is supposed to un have certain understandings about the market, allow that to happen. And so that's, the whole construct then helps them internalize it and, and it helps them have the strong backhand when that happens. Yeah. Do you ever find that when people are reminded of these pre-commitments, do they kind of go, okay, yeah, you're right? Or do they ever, do they ever resist or sort of, eh, that was a different time and place? It, it could be a little bit about like the, the slight annoyance at the, at the fire drill. Yeah. But I, th I think that's where it's important for advisors to think creatively around how they communicate ideas and not just recite, but talk about emotions with, for example, what happened during the financial crisis. Use... Use an example like you are using, like, w how did that feel when the financial crisis mm -hmm. was playing out? 
and remember how negative we all felt and what we were tempted to do. So here's, here's this construct to ad address that. By making it real and using examples and bringing them into the moment as much as you can, I think you can be more effective than just just reciting what the plan is. Yeah, so, so my final question, in, in the behavioral investor, I talk about you know, something I think in which we are in deep agreement, which is uh, the need to be attuned to the reality of the wealth-destroying effects of market bubbles uh, without being so sensitized to them that, that you see them everywhere. I'll be honest, that's super hard for me to do. It's been super hard for me to strike that balance. And observationally, I've seen it be difficult in other people. How do you think is the best way to sort of strike that balance? I, I'm challenged too, yeah. frankly, it's Daniel, tough. because I, I recently reframed my views on the markets. Uh, a lot of people on my staff referred to me as a, a doom and gloomer. And I'm now declaring myself as a boom, boom, kaboomer. Yeah. And the reason is that you need to, you can't just always be negative about the markets, even when you're in these lofty parts, but you do need to acknowledge the boom. And instead of worrying about it, the boom means that you're making money likely in your portfolio. Mm -hmm. So be glad for it. Hope that potentially you can lock some of that, those gains in if it turns down, if you've got the right types of strategies in your portfolio. But switch from thinking about fear in the markets to thinking about the gains that you're seeing in your portfolio and feeling good about that. And that might be one way to not be so negative if you're always worrying about a decline on the other, you know, five minutes from now. So. Yeah, yeah. I, cer I certainly fall into that yeah. camp as well. So Phil, this has been awesome. If people want to learn more about Taves, if they want to learn more about the Behavioral Investing Institute, where can folks find you? So go, go to BIICoaching.com. And what we offer through that organization is a program where you get trained. And then it's interesting, Daniel, we, we, we've gone through several iterations. We first began doing workshops and then we realized that people weren't really executing on our ideas, even though we had some tools that we gave them. I, I can relate. Yeah. And so the next thing we did is we built a coaching program. And in the coaching program, we had a six-part training series where we'd teach them all of these things. We'd white-label materials for them. And guess what? People still weren't really doing it. So what we did two years ago is we added on to that a coaching execution phase that mm after the training would go for nine months where we'd help people incorporate all these things into their practice. You know, the key, if you decide to have a behavioral finance uh, component in your practice is to not just do it with new clients, but do it across your entire client base so that you can have everyone thinking like you do. So what we do is we, we bring people through that execution process. We keep them on pace to do that. We help them have conversations initially so that they can get comfortable with that. And by the end of that period, we've, we've, we've found pretty remarkable results where instead of just talking about behavioral finance, we've seen uh, advisors start to really execute. And this has been, it, it took forever, but I think, I think we have meaningful tra uh, traction with this effort. Yeah, yeah, I think you do. I think you do. You've been incredible. No one better to have on a podcast about behavioral investing. Thank awesome. you for your time, your insights, and your work in the field. Thanks. Great being here. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. 
This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.